You are listening to the podcast of Grace Bible Church Ann Arbor. We are the rescued people of God joining His Great Restoration Project. More information, including sermons in this series, can be found at graceA2.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. I have a couple goals <clears throat> this year, uh, some of which um, are maybe uh, not, not terribly serious. One is that uh, I will play golf, learn to play golf well enough that I will actually keep score at least once. Uh, that's, that's my goal. I have no idea. People are like, what do you golf? I was like, I don't know, because by the fourth hole, I get a 17 and I'm out on keeping a score. So uh, I, I'm adding a goal to never drink kombucha. That stuff looks disgusting. I'll put that on. Uh, I mentioned to the family yesterday who had lost three, three family members in the last year, I said, how about the goal is Jesus returns or no more funerals necessary? That would be a good one, right? That, that would be good. But a uh, 51-year-old man uh, named Erland, a Norwegian man, he made a goal for himself. His uh, sedentary lifestyle was, was taking a toll on his body. And so his doctor said, you need to get out. You need to be active. You need to do something have a hobby that will get you to walk or something like that. And he said, okay. So, so he decided that what he was going to do in order to help him get some exercise was to purchase a metal detector. Now, as far as I've seen, those people walk very, very slowly. So <laughs> I don't know how fit that would make you, but at least he was getting himself outdoors and he was walking around. Mostly, I'm sure he just thought it would be interesting, entertaining, maybe a little bit more active than some of his other options. And at first, his detecting yielded little more than aluminum foil, a few uh, modern coins, hardly worth the effort. But one day, he headed to a new area where he hadn't been before, and he climbed a small hill, and he began to wave the metal detector, and it started to alert him that something was under the ground. And he assumed this is just going to be some other relatively uh, valueless type thing. And so he started to dig and right away he saw some gold colored objects that he thought at first was a toy or maybe like a a chocolate coin with like a foil around it or something like that. But instead it turned out to be uh, this. It was a necklace made of gold coins separated by small gold pearls. Now the, the weight of it is not massive. It's like three and a half ounces, which some of you can do the math of what you think that value is. But what makes it more valuable than the weight of just the gold is that it was a necklace that has been dated to before the time of the Vikings. Archaeologists think that it's 1,500 years old, which makes this incredibly unique and incredibly valuable. Now, this priceless thing was just five inches below the dirt and had been ignored by countless people who weren't walking around with metal detectors. They just weren't paying attention to what valuable thing could be right there beneath them. And my guess is, if we believed that just wandering around with a metal detector would yield incredible, valuable rewards, we would probably all be walking around with metal detectors because all of us want to strike gold, right? We we all want to be rewarded for our efforts. And some of us, we make goals this time of year where we're hoping that some of these new habits, these new things that we're going to do are going to yield some sort of reward in the end. But what happens, as Todd mentioned, you may have made a goal last year that didn't last very long, is that we try it for a little while and nothing seems to happen. 
and then we basically just quit and go back to our old habits. Well, we are back to a sermon series that we started a year ago called Habits of Grace. This is Habits of Grace Part 2. Now, some of you realize this, some of you don't. There is a Habits of Grace website, and you can find the link on our website, which is basically a Bible reading plan that kind of follows along, and you read through the Bible in two years, and so it puts different texts. If you don't have the time to look it up and read it, um, which you do, but let's just say you're making a lame excuse, uh, you can also listen to it in the car or something like that. So there really aren't any excuses for you to be spending time in God's Word. But what we want to do is spend a couple weeks. You're like, what about Romans? I love We're going back to Romans soon. We'll be there forever, all right? So we'll be back. <laughs> Just let's take a little Romans breather. What we're going to do just for these three weeks is to focus on three habits. It'll call it three and a half. We'll connect uh, what Alex was doing last week with it as well. But three habits, three expectations, three things that should mark our lives. And the really cool thing about this is that each of these has a promised reward. Like literally, Jesus said, you will be rewarded. So, so these are the types of things that if Jesus says it's going to happen, it may not take two seconds and it may not be five inches below the surface, but we will strike gold if we listen to what Jesus says. So today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, which if you grab your pew Bible in front of you is on page... 8.11, Matthew 6.11. I was reading this, uh, uh, this text just in my own kind of quiet time uh, a couple months ago, and when I saw these phrases in Matthew 6, I was like, whoa, okay, I need to slow down on this a little bit. Now, I want to help you understand a little bit because this is like the middle portion of a sermon. So you need to understand a little bit about what Jesus was talking about in his sermons. When Jesus preached, what did he preach about? I mean, that's sort of a big, big, big question. But in Matthew 4, 17, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was Jesus' sermon about? The kingdom. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is here. What does that mean? Well, what he was going around telling everybody is, um, All of you think life is going like this. And you all have a vision of what your life is supposed to be. And in order to get there, you're doing a lot of good things, but doing some bad things. And some of you are worshiping false. I mean, there's like all kinds of things that even your good deeds are tainted by sin. You think it's this, but I want you to turn from that. And I want you to realize that I'm here now. And I am the way. And so I'm going to paint for you a picture of what this new kingdom looks like. What this new vision is. And in order to demonstrate and punctuate that message, in verse 23 of chapter 4, it says, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus is giving this kingdom message about how the world was supposed to be like Eden, how, how we are called to be flourishing, and he paints this new vision for what life is supposed to be, no longer what it was but brand new. There's a story that's told about uh, Steve Jobs when he approached uh, John Scully, who at that time was the president of the Pepsi company. And um, Steve Jobs was trying to pitch John to come work for him. 
But in that world, Pepsi was like this huge thing, and Apple was not, was not a big thing. And yet, Steve knew that he needed John's expertise. And so he went to him and he said, listen, I, w- I want you to leave your highly paid position in this world-leading company, and I want you to come work for me at Apple. And John was like, uh, no, I'm good. So he tried a second time. He goes, listen, come on, no, seriously. Uh, we're, we're doing this really cool thing, blah, blah, blah. And John was like, nope, I will stick with where I am. I'm happily employed, you know, I'll benefit, whatever, whatever. So a third time... Steve Jobs goes to him, and this time he, he approaches him a little bit differently. And finally, there was a question that Steve asked, and it changed John's mind entirely. And the question that Steve asked that only a Steve Jobs could ask was, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water, or do you want a chance to change the world? I mean, wow, you think kind of highly of your goofy phone computer company, but what he was saying is, you're trapped in this sugar water reality and you're getting paid a big check. But I'm about to do something so different, it's going to change the world. When, when Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going, you guys have been tracking in the sugar water. You, you like have a vision for how it's supposed to be. What I'm doing now is going to change literally the world and we are going to be and do something very different if you walk with me. So go my way, the kingdom of light, turn away from the kingdom of darkness, turn away from all of that, and walk in this way. Well, it is in that context that we read our, our, our passage for today. This is Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. What follows after this are these three different practices. Over these three weeks, we're going to look at these, each of which Jesus promises to reward. Today, we're just going to look at the first of those practices, just verses uh, one through four here, and we're going to look at this in three ways, all alliterated, because as heavy as this week is, I can still find a way to alliterate a sermon. But these are our three G's for today, giving, grandstanding, and gaining, so Let's start with the giving. And there's this formula that Jesus uses where he says, when you do this, don't you do that, then you will get this. So so giving is the when you portion. Here's what it says, starting in verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy. Now, all three of these sections start with when you do such and such. Not if you do such and such. He says, when you. When you give, and then I'll talk about prayer. When you pray, and then he talks about fasting. When you fast, are any of us doing that, by the way? When you do these things, make sure you don't do it like that, and then this is going to be the result. But, well, here, the first thing that he mentions is when you give. Almost every faith that, that, that I'm aware of has some version of almsgiving, some version of prayer, fasting, as spiritual practices. For Jewish folks related to giving, There were multiple different tithes or offerings that they were supposed to give throughout the year, including making a section of their field available for hungry people that might be wandering through. And they were to give financially to and through the synagogues and the temple so that the priests would be taken care of and that the needs of the poor would be met. And all of those offerings were important and helpful, and generosity was just sort of expected from them. 
Now, for us, as Jesus followers, as Christians, as people no longer under that system, we don't have those specific weights and laws sitting on our shoulders telling us that we are supposed to be generous. They just had laws to prompt them in the direction of generosity. What do we have? I mean, a law is pretty compelling, right? What's more compelling than a law? Jesus. We have Jesus. Jesus, the one who came not to take from us and and demand a tax, but to give up everything. Jesus who came without blowing a trumpet and a bunch of fanfare to lay down his very life. We have the power of the Holy Spirit who has come and makes us, by the work of Jesus, part of God's family and blesses us with every spiritual blessing and provision. So when we think about generosity, and Jesus says something like, when you give, it's not when you give because there's a law over you. It's when you give because you're overflowing with thankfulness for what Jesus has done. Imagine a a teenager who didn't have a family and they'd struggled their entire lives bouncing from one tough situation to another and one day they were adopted immediately into a large, loving, stable, wealthy family. Everything would change for that young person. Their name would change. Where they live would change. They would now have healthy siblings. They would have access to a full refrigerator, hot water, clean bedding. They would have the wisdom, the encouragement, the direction of their parents. They would be written into an inheritance that they couldn't ask for, imagine, and they certainly didn't deserve. Everything would change. But it would take them a while to start to understand, oh, this is what's been done for me. And at some point, I can imagine them going, wait, is all of this actually mine? Well, that's what happens for the person who comes to faith in Christ. When you become justified in him, your name is changed, your destiny is changed, your inheritance is changed, your family is changed, and the money that we have or the things that we've been given, it's all like, wait, this is, this is mine too? Yep. And now, when we give generously... So do we? Are we a generous people? I don't know. When you elbow the person, here's my goal for the year. Mine, corny, about golf or kombucha or whatever. Did any of you go, my goal this year is to be more generous? Did anybody? To give more money. That's not awkward in church, right? (laughs) Are you actually generous? Because here's what I know. Probably all of you are potentially generous. In your hearts, you're generous. We're all generous in our hearts. We're just not generous in real life. And like, come on, that's not fair. I would totally be really generous, you know, if I won the lottery. If I just had like so much money, it was hard to carry, I'd probably give some to somebody else. Are we actually generous? Here's what I know that we actually are. Judgmental about other people's generosity. Do you know why I know that? Because I am. I was on this little thing called Twitter or X or whatever it is. You're like, do you post on there? Yeah, I did once in like 2017, I think. But I was just sort of, sort, sort of looking at it. And apparently, some church spent a ton of money on some sort of Christmas pageant thing. I don't really get pageants, but they, they had like a flying sleigh on a wire and like angels and stuff, like, like 
flying, you know, on what, and like smoke and lasers. And you'll never guess how people thought about that or responded. I mean, the comments following were just like so judgmental. It was just like, they should have sold that and given it to the poor. So don't worry, guys. I corrected them. I was just like, oh, hashtag Judas. That sounds very familiar to me. <laughs> Do people hashtag it? I don't even know how that works. I mean, I know that we're all judgmental about other people's finances because I know that I am. And the first time I saw all the lights and lasers, I was like, Psh. and then we used a bubble machine, which was <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Bubbles for Jesus. So I know that we can be judgmental. What I don't know is, are we actually generous? Or are we just potentially generous? And so we're like going, oh, that, that's... It would be like me going, hey, this year, I'm going to get in really good shape. Look, abs. You go, Ty, it doesn't work like that. Wanting to be in good shape and actually doing the stuff to get in shape are two very different things. I think all of us want to be generous. I just don't know that all of us are willing to do the things to make us actually legitimately generous people. I know that it's a challenge for me right now in this season of life. So I'm not calling you out. I'm calling me out. There were years in my life where I'd say to Charity in January, you know what's going to be cool? What? I said, we're going to give more money this year than we did last year. Like I was excited about it. She's Dutch, less excited. But I was like, this is it. <laughs> I didn't say that this year because I have a kid in college. And I have another one who's about to graduate high school. And I'm getting to that age where all of a sudden, I'm like, a lot of things my parents said made sense. And it's hard for me to be excited about it in a very practical way. So I'm not trying to cast dispersion. I'm saying, Ty, am I willing to make this a goal for me? That when you give. But Jesus says it's not just about giving. It's not just about outwardly doing something. Because when you, he says, don't you. Well, don't you what? Don't you grandstand. Our second point, grandstanding. Don't you do this. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. There is a right way and a wrong way to give according to Jesus. There is a way to give according to Jesus that in, in such a way that you're, you're just showing off. You're blowing a trumpet. You're letting everybody know, hey, look, I donate to this thing or whatever. There is a way to do something that appears right, but actually underneath is wrong. And you've seen this happen before where something like looked kind of right on the outside, but it smelled wrong to you. You know what I'm talking about? Where they're like doing something very spiritual or good, and you're like, ah, something doesn't sit right with me about that. It, there's a way that we can do that even when it comes to our generosity. And so Jesus is warning us not to be hypocrites. And it is very, very easy for all of us to slip into this mode of, okay, fine, I'll do this thing that Jesus, I guess it's supposed to be an overflow that Jesus is asking me. But if I'm going to do it, then I want to be recognized for doing it. Now Jesus says, beware of this, that your, your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. Did you see that in verse uh, 3? But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I don't think Jesus is saying, just 
just be like, oh, there's money. Run away. Don't get a record of your giving for tax purposes. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying give in a way that you're not looking for pats on the back from other people, and you're not even looking for pats on the back from yourself. That you're not even like, well, nobody knows about how awesome I am, but I do. No, no. When you give that way, when you give for the purpose of applause, applause will become your reward. Have you ever been applauded? It feels great for like 15 seconds. And then it feels awkward. If you give with a trumpet so that the whole world goes, look at you, that's all the reward you can ever get. And I know that I get miffed sometimes if I'm trying to be generous and nobody acknowledges it. Or if somebody said, hey, um, do you have any money? I said, I'll take you to lunch. And they say, no, that's good. I want your money. I'm like, oh, man, I tried to be generous. You're not even letting me be generous. That's what a punk, you know? Or, or like, if nobody n- knows, it bothers. Why? Because there's this little tiny way in which I'm grandstanding. I'm better at it than a dude with a trumpet, but I'm still grandstanding. So, so it's not wrong to, to give and keep a record for tax purposes. It's not wrong for you to personally go and say, listen, God has blessed me, and I have, if there's a need that you have, I want to help meet that. That's a good thing. Don't talk yourself out of that. Just don't give in such a way that is seeking applause as your reward. By the way, do you know what the longest standing ovation on record is? You're like, really? I looked this up. Part of sermon prep, I call it. <laughs> the longest standing ovation on record was at the uh, Cannes Film Festival in France. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it was for the movie Pan's Labyrinth. I haven't seen it. I don't endorse I know nothing about it except a creepy picture. That's all I know about it. After the film, the audience stood and applauded for 22 minutes. Would that be awesome? What if you could give and the entire church stood and applauded for you for 22 minutes? I mean, it's a reward, I guess. But don't give in such a way as to receive an applause from humans because there's a better reward available. Which brings us to point point three. Gaining, gaining. When you give, don't you grandstand. Then you, verse 3, when you give to the needy, don't you let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret. Here's what I was reading when I was reading Matthew chapter 6 that freaked me out for a second and then really made me stop. It says your heavenly father sees what you do in secret. That sounds terrifying. Your heavenly Father knows what's going on in your heart. Your heavenly Father knows how generous you actually are. Your heavenly Father knows how judgmental that you've been about other people's generosity. Your heavenly Father knows that all of those good things you attempted to do were actually done with the wrong spirit. Your heavenly Father knows the truth. There is no acting before him. It is like, when my sons were little and they would dress up as Spider-Man or whatever. And they'd be like, I'm Spider-Man. I'd be like, okay, buddy. No, no, don't call me buddy. It's Peter Parker, you know. I'm like, I can see your feet, Spider-Man, Peter Parker. <laughs> whatever. And they jump around. And they're... 
Like, okay. And it's cute for like half a second. But then it's kind of like, okay, all right, we can play Spider-Man. But, but I know who you are beneath the mask. Your heavenly Father knows who you are beneath the mask. You can't fool him. What's done in secret, what's thought in secret, what's said in secret, what's felt in secret, your heavenly Father sees it. And yes, we should turn from those things. We should repent from those things. But here's what captured me about these texts. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will what? Punish you, scold you, crush you, destroy you, abandon you because you know you deserve it. No. So that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. How good is that? Have you ever seen a little kid excited to give their parents their Christmas gift? Have you seen this before? Where did that Christmas gift come from? The kid. No, it didn't. No, no, it didn't. It was the parent who put the idea of the Christmas gift in the kid's head in the first place. And then it was the parents who said, here's an allowance that you get for doing nothing. Let's be honest. And then it was the parent who said, what do you think they would want? I know you made an ashtray, honey, but they don't smoke. So what do you think? <laughs> we used to, in the old days, we would make ashtrays, okay? This is like, oh, I don't know. In arts class or whatever. <laughs> that was not in my script, by the way. <laughs> Uh, so, so they say, maybe they would want this. Let's go. I will drive you to the store with the idea that I gave you and the money in your pocket, which is actually my money in your pocket, and then you can buy a thing, and then we will go home, and then I will help you wrap it with the paper that I purchased, put it under the tree that I paid for in the house that is warmed with my money, and then on Christmas morning, you can go like this and go, look what I got you. And all parents of children love that moment. And when the kid opens it up, or, or the parent rather opens it up, they don't look at the kid and go, wow, your mom did a great job of picking this out. They say, oh, this is perfect. And they reward and they celebrate the child. Your father, who sees every act of generosity that you've ever given, especially when you weren't trying to grandstand, he knows that the breath in your lungs, the money in your pocket, the gifts that you have, the ideas that have come to your head are all from him. And yet he still goes, bravo, bravo, I will meet your needs. I will be present with you. I will reward you. Once upon a time, there was a rich young ruler, and he wanted what Jesus had to offer, but greed had gripped his heart. And so when Jesus said, turn from that old stuff, Step into the kingdom. Follow me. The guy went away very sad because, well, he loved his stuff. And he thought that his stuff could give him greater comfort and greater reward than Jesus could. I was thinking about him. And I was thinking about what I would say to him if I got to talk to him the day after he walked away from Jesus. Like if I could like get in a time machine and go back and be like, listen, I'm from the future. I want you to understand something. I want you to know what you were offered in Jesus and the path that you're about to take that isn't the path of Jesus. I want you to know how this is going to play out. 
You know, what you don't realize, rich young ruler, is that Jesus is in fact the Savior of the world and he's going to give up something far more significant for you than money. He's going to lay his life down so that you can have a heavenly inheritance. And I I know that that's hard for you to imagine because you're like, well, that's so far out there. I'm living here right now. And so you can, if you want, you can, you can ignore him and, and you can live a comfortable life, you know, and you can probably have your share of pleasures and you might get a bunch of applause. But if you ignore Jesus, not only will you miss out on that thing that's coming eventually, but you're going to miss out on so much in this life and you're going to become a sad footnote for all of history. So just tell me, are marble floors and a new robe, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Because if you trust Jesus for salvation, then here's what's going to happen. So if you run and you find him and you start actually walking with Jesus, here's what's going to happen. You are going to get to see Jesus' miracles firsthand. You are going to probably, in some way, have more freedom from the anxiety of stuff than you've ever had, even though you have less stuff. Not, not Not only that, But you are going to be somebody whose generosity changes other people's lives. 2,000 years from now, you will be remembered as being a hero of the faith. But this is only if you can accept Jesus' vision for you and his challenge to you, to trust him and be generous. Not like a grandstander, but like someone who knows that there is so, so much to gain. What if we believe Jesus? What if we actually trusted when Jesus says that he's with us, that he'll provide for us, and that he will give us the only thing that we need so that we can have an eternal inheritance? What if we actually believed him and we developed some habits and we made 2024 the most generous year of our lives? If we did, it would seem that there will be a reward better than any necklace or gold trinket. A reward of God's presence, his provision, and assurances of his promises. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these challenging things. The the Sermon on the Mount, Father, you, every time it's just such a confrontation of, of who I actually am versus what I talk about. Because the vision Jesus presents to us, Father, is extremely, extremely challenging and it's impossible apart from your spirit. And so, God, I would ask, I would ask that for the person in here who maybe has been worshiping stuff, that they would be confronted by Jesus' words and that their hearts would come to life in recognition of Jesus' gift and his presence to us. Father, would we believe so completely that our greatest needs are already met in Christ, that this would be the most generous year of our lives. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.